0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 3 today. We are um, continuing our way through this sermon series that we're calling Route 66 and uh, what I'm attempting to do is to move through the entire Bible one book at a time starting in Genesis and moving through Revelation um, preaching one sermon per Bible book and we started with Genesis we spent a little extra time in Genesis because Genesis is just so foundational So um, we had three sermons on Genesis about the creation of the universe, about the beginning of sin, and about the beginning of the nation of Israel. That's what we looked at last week. And so now we're finally moving away from um, the Genesis station and moving on to the next station, which is Exodus. And from here on out, I promise I'm going to do the best I can to keep this uh, one sermon per Bible book. And yeah, we're going to seek to go through uh, the entire Bible through uh, revelation. So this second book of the Bible is called Exodus and it's a very appropriately named book because it is about exactly that, the Exodus. That is the uh, way God freed or delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt. And so what I'm gonna try to do as we continue to go through here is just give you a little background information on, on each book. And so the book of Exodus we believe was written by Moses, and we'll learn more about Moses here shortly. Written about 1406, 1446 B.C., so that's before the time of Christ, so uh, what's, you know, 3,500 years ago. Um, Some significant events in the book of um, Exodus, the birth of Moses, crossing of the Red Sea, the plagues on, Uh, the nation of Egypt, the giving of the Ten Commandments, building of the tabernacle, golden calf. And um, is that me doing that sound? They keep telling me. Um, And the theme of the book, slavery or freedom. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. That's what we're going to be focusing on, is this theme of freedom. I don't know if that's going to do it or not. Nope, it's not going to do it. Just don't touch it. Dan says, just leave it alone and it'll be okay. Okay, I'll try not to touch it. So, um, the great theologian Bob Marley uh, once said this, better to die fighting for freedom than to be a prisoner all of your life. And that captures something I think we all feel about freedom, that there are few things that we are more happier that we are happier to gain than freedom. Few things that we are more sad to lose than freedom. Uh, we just re-watched the movie Shawshank Redemption this past week and what a wonderful picture that movie is of freedom, of a guy who was enslaved for 20 years and he, he frees himself and you just get a picture of the glory and joy and greatness of what it is to be free. And The book of Exodus is about Israel's freedom and so this event in this book this crossing of the red sea this freedom from egypt becomes the most central part of israel's identity this is the ground for their hope this is the most significant event in their redemptive history so if you were to ask a New Testament believer today, for instance, you know, what is your hope? What is the most significant event in redemptive history for you? As a New Testament Christian, I hope you would say, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our ground for hope. But for the Old Testament believer, looking back to the great redemptive acts in their past, what they would say is the great redemptive act is the exodus when God came and delivered us from our slavery to Egypt. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. Actually, not the crossing of the Red Sea. That's in Exodus chapter 14. I'm gonna read Exodus chapter three, verses one through 14. And this just kind of uh, gets some preliminary events going where we see God calling Moses to be his instrument to bring about this great act of deliverance. So, if you have your Bibles, once you uh, stand, well, even if you don't have your Bibles, stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to see three things here in this passage about the Exodus. We're going to look at an enslaved people, an insecure leader, and finally, a mighty God. So the first thing we're gonna look at is an enslaved people. Um, so beginning here in verse six, God is speaking to Moses, and I want you to notice here the continuity of the story. What this sermon series is about is seeking to help us understand that the Bible is one big grand story, not a bunch of disconnected parts, but one story. And so in verse six, God comes, he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now you remember last week we talked about how God had come to Abraham. Um, So we we see the continuity of the story from Abraham up to this current point. Last week, remember, Abraham was called to be the father of a great nation, and we kind of left the story there, what ended up happening, remember Sarai was barren, she couldn't have a child, but actually miraculously she did have a child and she gave birth to a guy named Isaac. And so another significant event uh, in the book of Genesis was when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and yet God provided a substitute ram so that he didn't have to do that. So the very significant story about Abraham and Isaac. But then to Isaac was born Jacob and from Jacob came 12 sons, which became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Genesis 35, Jacob's name is changed by God to Israel, and that's where Israel gets its name. But you notice here that there is a continuing story. We're in another book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and yet what God is saying to Moses is the same story is moving ahead. I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and I'm your God, also Moses. One story here going on. Now, you'll remember from last week that we learned that very often there is some kind of obstacle to God's redemptive plan. So, all the way back in Genesis three, verse 15, God said, I'm gonna send a descendant, this descendant is gonna come, and gonna crush the head of the serpent. And then last week we were alarmed because we saw that Sarah was barren. How is this descendant going to come if Sarah is barren? And God miraculously brings Isaac out of that relationship. Well, we have another obstacle here in this situation because last week, Genesis 12, God came to Abram and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a great nation. And all the world's going to be blessed because of you. And I'm going to send you as a nation into a land. But what do we see here in Exodus chapter three? Verse seven, the Lord's talking to Moses. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Israel's enslaved. Israel doesn't appear to be a great nation, does it? They are laboring under the ruthless oppression of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And then in verse eight, we see that God says, I have come down to deliver them, the Israelites, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land. So we see also that Israel are not in the land that God had promised. So here's this promise about how God is gonna bring about redemption. This descendant promised in Genesis three is gonna come through this great nation, and yet we get to Exodus, and this nation is in the wrong place at the wrong time, under the wrong rule and we're left wondering, what what is God gonna do? How is the redemptive plan going to go forward under this situation? And you can imagine how miserable Israel must be. Now they've heard these promises, they're looking forward to the promises, but we read here that they're suffering heavy burdens, that they're oppressed, And there's a point where the Pharaoh even requires that all of the Hebrew sons be killed, be thrown into the Nile. And you can just imagine that the people of Israel must be thinking, has God forgotten about us? What about all those promises that we've been relying on, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It sure doesn't look like God's being very faithful to what he said he would do. Has God forgotten? And the answer is no, he's not forgotten. If you go look at the very end of chapter two, verse 24, it says God heard the groaning of his people. And what did he do? He remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He remembered that he made a promise. And this is what we're gonna see is absolutely central to this whole biblical story. It's God making promises and God fulfilling those promises over and over again. A covenant is basically a promise. And we didn't get to cover too much of that so far, but he made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Noah. He's making promises to his people about the redemption that he's going to accomplish. We have one God making one promise for one plan of salvation to one people. And it's all for the purpose of the redemption that he promised all the way back in Genesis three. Now, I, I wanna stop here and pause just a second to, to consider um, an alternate way to look at the biblical story because people interpret it differently. There are different takes on how this is all unfolding and what really is going on. And when you consider the, 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 the enslavement of Israel, that there are some who from that fact, build an entire theology, and this theology is called liberation theology. Now, a lot of you maybe have not heard about this. This is talked about in academic circles a little more, but um, maybe you've heard people talk about the Bible in in this way. Liberation theology would say this about the Bible story. It would say that the main issue in the Bible is the poverty the oppression and the exploitation that we see taking place where strong governments and people enslave, abuse, and oppress weaker people. And that really what the Bible is about is freeing people from slavery and freeing people from oppression and bringing them out of their poverty. And they would point to Genesis 3 and they would say, look, I mean, this is a monumental event in the Bible where God is freeing Israel. They're slaves and God has delivered them. And so really what Christianity is about primarily is working to relieve people from poverty and oppression. And so a guy named Sam Storms describes it this way, describing liberation theology. It sees it as poverty is pervasive, oppression is systemic, Hence redemption must be more than forgiveness of individual souls, it must transform social structures and human existence as well. So the idea here is that forgiveness of sins is kind of a secondary thing to God's efforts to free the exploited, the oppressed, and the poor. Now, Certainly there's truth to liberation theology and as Christians indeed we are called to address and be concerned about issues of poverty and oppression and injustice. But liberation theology tends to turn things upside down a little bit by being more concerned about the vertical responsibility of Christians without thinking too much about the horizontal responsibility to God. It's getting things turned upside down a little too much. It's downplaying too much the central part of the biblical story which is to show how God has worked to reconcile people to God, to their creator. To eliminate the condemnation that is on us so that we can know him and relate to him as our personal savior and God. If you look at verse 12, look what God says is eventually gonna happen. He speaks to Moses and he says, I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. What's the whole purpose of this? It's so that you shall serve God on this mountain. The purpose is worship. That's why God wants to deliver his people so that they'll worship him. Now again, Christians ought to be concerned about the poverty and oppression that we see, but we have to be careful that we don't allow those efforts to obscure what is the central thrust of the biblical story. So really the significance here of this whole enslavement, Israel being enslaved to Egypt, the significance of this, and the way we should read it as New Testament believers, is we see that this is a picture of our enslavement to sin apart from Christ. It's a picture of how... Satan and sin can dominate us. Now, you might say, well, that sure sounds like you're spiritualizing things there, Bob. Well, here's why I I believe that. If you look at John chapter 8, Jesus says this. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, if you abide in my word, excuse me, to the disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He, He is speaking to the Pharisees. The truth will set you free. And then they answer him. And they say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. So see, they're thinking that Jesus is talking about literal slavery, like Israel was enslaved to Egypt. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And then Jesus answers and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying the enslavement that I have in mind is slavery to sin. Now what what do I mean by by being enslaved to sin? Well it goes like this. Here's the way so many people reason. Here's the way people think. I'm tired of religion. I'm tired of tradition. I'm tired of doing what my parents say. I'm tired of the Bible and orthodoxy. I feel so repressed, I feel so constrained, I'm gonna break out of that and I'm gonna exert my freedom. I'm gonna do what I want. There's a Miley Cyrus song where she sings, we do what we want, we say what we want, and we love who we want. It's an affirmation of freedom. And and this is the way people think. I'm enslaved to religion, I've been enslaved to God, so now I'm gonna break free and assert my freedom. And you know what happens is when you take that attitude, you find you're enslaved to something entirely different. You become enslaved to money. You become enslaved to fear. You become enslaved to sex. You become enslaved to pornography. You become enslaved to the approval of others. You become enslaved to substance abuse. This is the fruit of rebellion against God throwing him off and finding yourself enslaved to something else. It's impossible to avoid it. Like Bob Dylan sang, right? You've got to serve somebody. Somebody's going to be your master. And you throw off God and think that you're free and you find that you're enslaved to something else. And even in that Miley Cyrus song, she goes on and she sings, we can't stop. You know why you can't stop? Stop. Miley? Because you're a slave. You're a slave to sin. And that's what we're to get if we take Jesus' word seriously here. And as we allow the Bible to unfold its meaning, we see in the enslavement of Israel, not just the enslavement of Israel, but the enslavement of sinners. And that's the problem that we all deal with. And a problem, From which we're all looking for freedom. So, an enslaved people, that's the first thing. Second thing, we see an insecure leader. So, God is choosing somebody, an instrument, by which He is going to deliver His people from slavery. Now, just in that is kind of something really wonderful. That is, that, you know, God could do whatever He wants by Himself, He could have freed. Israel from Egypt by himself, but he chooses to use you and me, you know? He, he wants to involve you in what he's doing, and he gathers people up and uses us to do amazing things, and Moses is one of these people. So um, uh, Moses is one of the greatest figures in, in the scriptures. For the next few sermons, as we go through the next few books here in the Old Testament, we're going to be talking about Moses. I mean, a lot of ink is spilled in the Bible on Moses. Moses is the guy through whom God gives the law to his people. So we very often think of Moses as a lawgiver. But what we see here in verse 1 of chapter 3 is that Moses is doing something rather humble. He's just working as a shepherd, leading the flock of his father-in-law, Jericho. And um, We know though from what happened in chapter two that God has saved Moses for something very special. Um, I made reference to this a moment ago. Pharaoh had decided that he was going to kill all of the Hebrew sons required that they all be thrown into the Nile. That was the time when Moses was born, so he was an infant at that time, and his mother looked upon him. This is a beautiful child. The mother wanted to do something to save him, and so mom put Moses in a little basket and put that basket in the river. And so here you have Moses in a basket floating on a river, which should remind you, although we didn't get to cover it in Genesis, but remember Noah in the ark? Noah? in an ark floating on the water as an instrument of deliverance. Now we have Moses being placed in a mini ark, a basket floating on the water, another instrument of deliverance. And so he floats down the river, Pharaoh's daughter then comes down and sees Moses, brings him up out of the basket and brings him into an Egyptian household where Moses then grows up. And so we see here God working to save Moses because he has a plan for how he's gonna use this man. So, we're moving forward later (laughs) in Moses' life when we get to this incident where he is working as a shepherd and then in verse two, this really bizarre thing happens. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So here's this burning bush, and it says Moses looked, the bush was burning, it, was, it wasn't even consumed, and then Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. So I think all of us would probably do the same thing. This bush that's burning up, it's not consumed, and God speaks out of this bush. Now, what is this about? Why is this bush burning? I mean, there's a lot of commentaries talking about this. You know, probably it's just this simple, that fire represents God. Later on, we're going to find that Israel is led through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. Uh, It says elsewhere in the scriptures, God is a consuming fire. So in this burning bush, it's just a representation of God. And then out of this bush, God speaks. And so he says in verses four and five, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is the first time in the Bible we see the word holy. And this ends up playing a very big role, again, as we continue through this story. But you see something here about God's, um, about the way we approach God, and that is that we should Approach God with caution, right? Because God says to Moses, Don't even come near me. I mean, you're on holy ground. That's not because the ground itself was different than other parts of the earth. The ground was holy because a holy God was in the place of that ground. But what God tells Moses is, You got to be careful. (laughs) You got to be careful about how you approach me. And we should keep that in mind when we come to worship, you know. I mean, we are coming into this place, into the presence of the same holy God. And we should be sure that when we come into God's presence, we are doing it in accordance to how he likes to be approached. <laughs> it's not up to us to just invent ways to worship and to come into his presence however we wish. And so God speaks to Moses in this way. Be careful. And so God then calls to him, and we see that in verse 10. Come, Moses says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses, you're going to be my instrument to free my people. What an amazing honor, what an amazing request that God is making upon Moses here. And we might imagine that... Moses, from all we know of him being this great leader, that Moses might have stepped forward and said, yeah, thanks God for noticing, you know, how talented and gifted I am as a great leader, and so, all right, let's go, let's do this thing, you know? But that's not what he says, is it? Verse 11, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What, you're calling me to do this? I'm just this shepherd guy. I'm just doing a regular old job here. What, you want me to go to Pharaoh and lead your people out? This is crazy, and then as we get into chapter four, the dialogue kind of goes on, and um, Moses, first of all, says to God, God, they're not gonna believe me when I go and tell them to free uh, Israel, and so God gives him an answer. And then Moses says, Yeah, but I, I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. I don't know what to say. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a gifted communicator. And then God answers that. And then it's like Moses is out of excuses and he just says, Send somebody else. You know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Can you please find somebody else? It, isn't that so different? than the way we see the depiction of leaders very often in other areas of our lives. You know, very often we think of leaders, these are people who are bold and confident and charismatic and self-assured and unafraid. And certainly some leaders do have those characteristics. That's right. But those were not the characteristics of Moses. Moses was scared. Moses was insecure. Moses lacked confidence. Moses was reluctant. He wanted someone else to do it. But isn't it amazing how God would choose someone so scared and so frightened and so insecure and then use him for such an amazing work? There is something so wonderful about the way God works in this way. One of my favorite books on leadership is called Leading with a Limp. That's what God desires out of his leaders leading not out of our strength, but out of our weakness. Because as the scriptures tell us, this is how God's power is made perfect. It's through our weakness. I I just wanna assure those of you who are leaders, and we have a lot of leaders in this church. We have leaders at Crew. We have leaders in our various universities. We have ministry team leaders and life group leaders. We've got deacons and deacons assistants and elders. We've got teachers. And I'm guessing very often in your positions of leadership, you think to yourself, God, get somebody else. I can't do this. I'm not skilled enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not good enough, I don't speak well enough. God, please find somebody else. I just wanna encourage you to lead with a limp and to lead through your weakness to lead not by wearing a crown in front of everybody, but to lead by carrying your cross before the people that you lead. This is the kind of leadership that God delights in. Leading out of weakness, exposing your insecurities, apologizing quickly, always wanting to give glory to others allowing yourself to decrease so that others can increase. Those are not only the kind of leaders that God likes to use, they're the kind of leaders that people generally like to follow as well. And so we see a wonderful example here of God's use of this insecure leader named Moses. Well, the third thing we find here is this mighty God who comes through for Israel. So we get to verse 13, and Moses says to God, <clears throat> if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name, what shall I say? What shall I say your name is, God? Now, God's answer to this is one that we might wish were a little more clear, <laughs> but, but here's how he answers. And, and, and something we learn here also is that if we're gonna know who God is, it has to come from God. <laughs> God defines himself. We don't have the right to make up in our own minds who we want God to be. Who you want God to be has nothing to do with who he actually is. (laughs) You know, sometimes people say, well, my God would never be like that, or I like to think of God like this. Well, that's totally irrelevant to who God is. You don't define God. God defines himself for us, and that's what he does here. And so here's how he defines himself he says, um, in verse 14, he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this word, I am who I am, it it comes from a a Hebrew word that's spelled like this, Y-H-W-H, and so there's no vowels in the Hebrews, it was originally written, but it's often been pronounced Yahweh, Uh, but not all of our translations translate it Yahweh, you you might find um, some, and if you have an ESV, you'll see that every time these four letters appear that it's actually translated Lord in all caps. Not all translations do it that way, but if you see that, that means it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, for a time the Jews wouldn't even pronounce the word because they regarded it as so holy. And that's why, partly why there's some debate about exactly how to pronounce this word or what it actually means. But we see something of the definition of the word when God kind of defines it for us here. And he says, I am who I am. It's the Hebrew word there, so it's a verb form for to be. And so it's like God saying, I am the one who is. I am the one who exists. I am the one who has been and is and will be. That's how he's kind of defining himself. So I think what God maybe is getting to here is something like this. God is saying, I am the self-existent eternal God dependent upon no one, with no beginning and no end, I'm not defined by anybody else. There is no other God or deity equal to me. They are all subordinate to me. I am the fundamental reality of all the universe. I am who I am. But because God here is speaking to Moses and because Moses is a little bit frightened here, Michael Williams tells it like this, and and, and he kind of personalizes it, and Yahweh is known as the personal name for God. So he says it like this. Here's what God is saying. I am the one who keeps promises. I am the one who is always faithful. I am the one who is there for my people. I am the one who is here for you. I am the one who acts on your behalf. That's what God is saying to Moses. I know, Moses, I've called you to do an amazing thing, but I want you to know I'm here for you. I am with you all the way and you watch, Moses, you watch what I do through your weakness. And so what happens? Well, Moses moves forward. He leads the people of Israel and um, they flee from Egypt. And we see that Pharaoh kind of changes his mind. He sends his armies back after Israel. Israel's running and they get to the Red Sea and there's mighty waters, they don't have any boats, what are they gonna do? The Red Sea's ahead of them. They look back, Pharaoh's armies are behind them, and they're stuck, and here we are again, God's people stuck, another insurmountable obstacle, right? Here's where the story ends, it's all done, except a mighty God shows up, fulfilling what he said, as he declared what his name was, he parts the waters of the Red Sea, and Israel's armies run through on dry ground, it says. And they get all the way across and Pharaoh's armies comes in and the waters come back upon God's enemies, killing them, destroying them, and Israel is free. And it all happens through not only just this mighty God but through this weak, insecure leader. Now, that's not the end of the story. I mean, that's a great story And if the story ended there, we'd probably be pretty thrilled. But you know what? It gets even better because here's what happens. Centuries later, another Israelite comes onto the scene. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, is having a discussion with the Pharisees. And he says to the Pharisees, he says, you know what? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, Abraham had lived centuries earlier. And so the Pharisees are going like, what What are you talking about? And the Pharisees say, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about, Abraham rejoiced to see you? And then Jesus looks him in the eye and says, before Abraham was born, I am, I am, wow. Man, if you know anything about Exodus three, I mean, that takes your breath away. Jesus Christ taking to himself the name that the God of the Old Testament used to describe himself. I am who I am. And Jesus says, I am who I am. And what he means is that I am God in the flesh. And just as God came down from heaven to save the people of Israel, so has he come down from heaven again in Jesus To save you. To rescue you. To deliver you. From your enslavement to sin. From your enslavement to the devil. From your fear of death. From the grave itself. Jesus has come. For you. He alone can rescue, friends. He can rescue people from a pursuing Egyptian army, but even more amazing than that, he can rescue you from yourself and from the condemnation of God if you will repent and place your faith in him. He alone can rescue, and if the Son sets you free, friends, you will be free indeed. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in the gospel. Praise be to your name, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us, God, and now that we have freedom of knowledge of you, O oh Lord, help us to live for you in devotion and submission and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.